If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and it's time to get lost and Hello again, and welcome to the 3 p.m. hour here on the East Coast in America. Recording from the lair on this cold Thursday in January, I am Alon Danziger, bringing you another new installment of Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. Every week on this year's program, we give a new voice a chance to share old sounds from their past and get a little objective with fresh ears at the table. And if you, like our guests, would like to get in on this fun, email the show at lostandrewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org. I'm going to fade this music here shortly as we prepare for this interview. But before we get to that, actually, I want to play an excerpt of this new single by Placeholder Confidential called Abbey by the Sea. It's available on Bandcamp as well as anywhere you get your music. Me and my team had a wonderful chat with the man behind this music, and it'll begin momentarily. Joined by the team of Rachel Teichman. What's a pandemic? And Will Gardner Hasty. Hey, Elon, did you did did your facial hair fall off? Is it is it gone? It's all back here, wrapped there. up in my in my uh, head warmer, nice. uh, which is keeping my head warm. Hey, Rachel, I think we have a guest. I know we have a guest. We have a guest literally on the call with us. Would you like to introduce said guest? Sure. This week, our guest is Ori Benavides, a singer-songwriter, guitarist, and novelist tailing from Kearney, New Jersey. When he is making music, he goes by the artist name Placeholder Confidential and has a new EP out right now called Summer or Bummer, available wherever you get your music. When he isn't making music, one of his hobbies is collecting digital trading cards. To talk about all this and much more... Welcome to Lost and Rewound and to Radio Free Brooklyn, Ori. I almost, no, I didn't. I, I just, <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners, Ori just grabbed his beard and hair as if he was going to shave all of it. And uh, I guess that didn't happen. Ori, is this what we call a pandemic beard? No, no, no. At some point in life, someone told me, oh, you look okay with beard. I'm like, I don't have to shave. <laughs> I do like it a little neater than this, but I forget it's there and then I get it trimmed every once in a while. I mean this just as a compliment. You look distinguished and you have that sort of like either the actor that played um Gimli or Sala in um Indiana Jones, you got that like distinguished man of earned right, you know? Also, I look ridiculous without it, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I wish I could I wish I could grow facial hair like yours. 
Oh, it's, thank you. It's it's quite epic. Um, you've it been is. living in New Jersey uh, since you were a teenager. That is correct. And you hail from Argentina. I was born in Argentina and came here when I was very young. I got here when I was three, and by the time I was in kindergarten, I spoke perfect English, and no one would ever think that I ever spoke Spanish. And that's from listening to music and watching Sesame Street, really public dollar. That's really to this day like that's. I never realized I was older. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I don't remember learning. I just always knew English, and it's just from absorbing that. So I was immediately interested in music. And a lot of the adults in my life were also like into very into music. Like from the time I was seven, I was always like, I was already collecting records. Were you imagining and thinking in English or in Spanish? Unless I was speaking to my grandmother, who I lived with for a while, I always had to translate from English into Spanish. Unless I'm speaking very basic things with family member, even with family members now, I have to stop, pause, and translate into it. How do you feel about that level of assimilation? I, it's been my environment the entire time, and I'm glad that I kept the Spanish. Yeah, you know, and also I'm happy. I for the near the end of my grandma's life, she stayed with me for. I'm very, I was very happy then that I had it, and she was able to speak Spanish to me. And she also would like she spoke like. 12 words in English, but she would try to use them all. But it was nice to do it. And I identify, identifying with culture is something that just never, I've never had a huge focus on myself. You have everything here. I absorbed everything. I, <laughs> do you consider yourself a true and blue Jerseyite? I have a lot of pride in where I am particularly. And yeah, you know, at this point, I spent my entire life within like 15 miles of the Empire State Building. I mean, where I am right now is closer to Manhattan, like, you know, like a lot of Queens and the Bronx and Brooklyn. You know, the boroughs are enormous. Like, you know, Queens goes on, like, I think it goes all the way to England. It is enormous. <laughs> it like, might as well. In Queens, you could be on the corner of a thousand street and a thousand Avenue. And you're like, how is this real? I feel like it's very few places in the world where you actually get the experience of living in what is like proper suburbia that feels like distant suburbia. And then in five minutes, you're in downtown Manhattan. Have you gotten used to that, like experiencing a very different type of lifestyle or type of like day-to-day -day life from where you then go to rest at night and like feel safe and feel away? Yeah, it's, uh, I did it when I was younger. And even when I first moved to Jersey, I lived in Newark and Jersey City, which are you know giant cities. They're just, when you have a city of eight and a half million people, no. A city of 400,000 and 300,000 people, whatever it would be, even though like this area on the other side of the river has like a million people in a similar, it's just, it's nothing compared to New York City. So, which is why like, I, when I first moved here, I thought I was moving to a farm. And in reality, it's, it's densely populated. There's like 40,000 people in two square miles in between the two said cities. I had a, a preconceived notion of what suburbia was. And, it, you know, where I am is just not that. It took some more travel to be like, oh, so that's actual suburbia. You go more into detail about what you thought suburbia would be and then what it actually means. My thought was that suburbia was, you know, beyond the picket fences and everyone has their own house and a block would have four houses on it. And there is like one, you know, there's like a 7-Eleven. There is a access to a strip mall and a highway. And... I thought I was going to go to a less enlightened place. The coast bias and the New York City bias that we have against the rest of the country, it's very real. Yeah. You know, we don't mean it, but it's just everything is a culture shock when you leave the area. 
And I was expecting to go into I thought I was going into like, you know, uh, I'm not going to pick on geographies, but let's say places for, pretty far away from New York, from New York is where I thought I was going to get. And then I get that. I'm like, oh, this is literally just like living in Brooklyn. The world baffles me because I have had a, I've had a, bu- a bubble of 10 million people, but still a bubble over me. <laughs> The Beatles, uh, I've always felt, were like, at the same time, the most overrated and underrated band on the planet. But realistically, the way as the, I can produce songs at a very, very, very high rate. And the base of that knowledge was that I found uh, used in a, in a library, a very cheap chord book of all the Beatles songs. And just playing along with that and picking out some of the songs apart, like all my music theory knowledge is strictly from that book. And just figuring out, oh, okay, so that's what they did. That's what this chord does. That's Oh, that's interesting. And on my own, to my own devices, I cannot produce melody. Lyrics are easy, but when I'm coming up with the melody of a song, I will do four vocal takes over it. And at the end, one melody will come out from all those. Just kind of like listen to it and I have to like kind of map it out and do a second round of that just to get something out of it. It doesn't come naturally to me, as opposed to everything else. Wow. And that is definitely something that I'm able to pick up on it from listening to Beatles songs. That sounds like you're describing what is like an arduous, like kind of pain in the assy part of your process. But I mean, is that is that like meditative or, or or like do you get a kick out of like laying down the vocals and being like, oh fuck, I found it? You know, like here's the melody. I'm describing 15 minutes of work here. Oh. I, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and our official motto we would have was half-assed full throttle. I felt bad because the EP that we did, mm-hmm. you know, my friend who produced it, he spent hours and days on it i spent maybe an hour on each song (laughs) this is this is the new ep that uh you just came out with summer or bummer right i understand that uh your collaborator on this lives 800 miles away from you he's actually also originally from Carney, new jersey we knew each other in in high school he's currently in illinois and uh he was planning to be there for a year and now like everything else that's gotten extended by the pandemic but yeah, that, right. That this everything did. That's why I love doing it. It's a entirely a pandemic project where we each did it in the comfort of our own rooms. This was quite a process to even come up with this uh, EP in the first place. On social media, for my friends, and a lot of times people can't tell if I'm joking or not. I said, "Hey, does anyone help me produce my 40-song rock opera about a sea god that has arisen to destroy the world, and then a hero that is summoned to uh, take back the land?" And a couple of people like responded to me, you know, but he reaches out and says, okay, sure. Let's, let's start. He thought I was kidding. And then I gave him the first song and then the, the rest of the other 40 songs. And he worked on a song. He's like, okay, we can't do this. It's 40 songs. It's an addition to that. Like, why don't you try releasing a nice four song indie pop EP that you can kind of promote, work through as opposed to releasing 800 things that would be obscure forever. Just try to do one thing. He's like, do you have any of those? I'm like, 
all right, sure. Here's 80 songs that fit the description. And we finally broke it out. It, it was a process to get down to four songs. The fact that you would just throw out there, yo, 40 song rock opera, let's go. Oh, <laughs> like, <yeah>. like, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and two, and the specifically fact- though about Sea God, who comes to who rises to destroy the world, dude? I if I saw that on a post board, I would f- I would be at your door that moment. That's awesome. This is just posting to friends. I but I should throw that out there into the universe, see what I get from it. I did make a four song, you know, mini concept album. If you ask me. I, I love nautical themes, so summer bummer is. I mean, the concept is just summer or bummer. But if you listen to songs, there's two summers and two bummers in there, and it is nautically themed. <laughs> So, all right. So I don't know if you know this, but um, sea shanties are at the brink of becoming incredibly trendy. They're killing it right now. Like, Oh my God. It's on the brink of exploding. What? Um, no, no. Yes. Like, and like, and like zoom recordings where it's re- like one person records one part, another person records another part, another person records another part, and yeah. then they stick them all together. It's, it's so good. You yeah, get see- like 40 person sea shanties. I'm slightly surprised that you're aware that this is becoming a thing. You were surprised. Just, just, this is like a puzzle pirates thing. Let's just keep rolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, no, and, yeah. So going back to my original point, sea shanties are at the brink of exploding. Are you excited? <laughs> <laughs> I am now. Okay. It's, if it's anything that's of the sea. So, yeah. okay, very quickly, I'm trying not to go too much of it on too many tangents, but okay. uh, I, I want to hear all about your sea shanty yeah, I have a surf music project, which now is how we're going to work on that. It's called The Paranoid Ravens. And the album was called, it's just, it's, it's just an album of demos for me and my friends, but it was called Ironic Because I Can't Swim, because I cannot swim. I never learned how to swim, but I'm obsessed with anything of the sea, anything nautical. Uh, the first song on the EP is about. It's not even about a, a girl. It's about a dress. And uh, it's someone who I'd met was a wonderful person, but was wearing this, this dress with anchors on it. And someone just given her as a gift. And I was like, I love that dress. It looks great. She's like, she's like, oh, you should write a song about me. And I went home. I took out a tuning I hadn't used in forever and wrote a song. I was super inspired by it. And again, she's a wonderful person but it was the dress that inspired it. That uh, actually was the song that we heard coming into uh, the interview, Abby by the Sea. That is the first song off the EP, Summer or Bummer. Why don't we listen to the closing track of the EP right now? It's a short one, but it's a very bouncy one. I like it. Um, And I know that uh, that our crew will like it too. It's called uh, Hey There Jelly Square.
So I suspect that that's one of the summer tracks. Correct. Okay. <laughs> that is not good. Yeah, that is definitely some summer fun loving. It was flaming. Uh, yeah. The minute I, I, I saw that title, I immediately thought of you, Rachel, because I know that you have a, a big uh, fandom of the SpongeBob SquarePants universe. Oh, that is absolutely true. What a uh, sea creature were you thinking of? Were you thinking just like a, I don't know, some something clearly that you've never seen up close because you've never gone into the ocean? Were you thinking Jelly Square? Were you thinking like 1950s, like something sort of wholesome and beachy? So, like a pie and not really. I you know that the song is supposed to sound like Buddy Holly covering Buddy Holly by Weezer. Yeah, oh my God. but it, it's a 50s rave up. Uh, that's an I, I forgot who I first started saying it to, but it is a random rhyme that I told someone once. I'm like, hey there, Jelly. I don't know if they're actually being jealous or not. The lyrics afterwards, I looked at it like there's something that I wrote very quickly. And afterwards, there's some lines in there where I'm like, I don't know where they came from. Like the second verse is. Light the fuse and drop the bomb. Set firecrackers off at dawn. It's also summery, right? Like, let it run. Now let's set firecrackers off after this romantic night on the beach, Jelly Square. God, gee golly, I never met a girl who I love as much as you. You know, like, it's like it all fits, you know? When did you start learning how to play guitar then? Somebody found a really terrible cheap acoustic at a garage sale. So, like, I learned how to tune, like, when I was, like, 15 or 16. I learned how to tune and play a couple of chords. Then afterwards, I had a period of time where I was writing and working on stuff, but just kind of casually. Then I put the guitar away for a few years. Then I had a band for a few years. Then I stopped playing music to work on writing novels and fiction for a while. And then came back to it again. Actually, I don't want to play it up too much. I did have a traumatic experience where I had both my cats passed away within a month, month of each other. Oh, man. So I, the closest I've come to actual like you no know, real depression in my life was for two months afterwards. I have like I have no memories, and then one day, I just wrote something down and I recorded fifteen songs the next day. It was cathartic. Like it was me. The first song was about my cats, and I can't listen to it without crying. That's kind of where I started playing music again. And I mean, I'm only a novice player. I can compose well on guitar. I do. I, I am not a great guitar player. I know my talents and whenever I produce anything on any level, I'm always aware of my limitations and I am better at making myself sound better than I am. <laughs> I'm not trying to put myself down. I'm saying that's a, a guitar is something that I love, but I love the songwriting aspect of it and the music it creates as opposed to the technical aspect of it. I can't yeah. shred or do anything like that. <laughs> I saw on Bandcamp, you have like a 40 song Christmas album or something. That I album like was, was a dare. Because somebody said, uh, I don't know, someone would say, oh, you should start a Kickstarter. I'm like, sure. I'll put up a Kickstarter saying, if I get $75, I'll produce a Christmas album. This is like a month before Christmas. I'm like, sure. I put it up and my friends saw it and I had way more than that immediately. I'm just like, all right. So I had to write, record and put together a very crude album. It was 26 songs though. Dude, you are so understated for such a fucking massive catalog. Jesus Christ. I'm in awe. <laughs> One day I can only hope to have a catalog as large as yours. The three years that you weren't making music and what kind of uh, fiction you were creating. You want to speak about that a little bit? I put out six books, two with a co-writer, and I was trying to do a different genre every book. So I went from young adult to sci-fi to second chance romance. 
to paranormal or supernatural mystery. I forget. These are yeah. these are a very loose definition of genres. I had always wanted to create a trilogy of books that could be read in any direction with different genres, and you kind of get different Easter eggs which way we go. And it, it was fun because the first one was a young adult novel. The second one was, a, I think it might be, un, I dare I say, unreadable sci-fi novel. Yes! It, it is the oh, most... Man! Fuck, I feel ya! <laughs> so the main character in the second book was a minor character in the first book, a waitress who actually is somewhere between a Time Lord and... Oh, I don't know. Every like secret organization that keeps the world from falling apart. She's like the head of this. And there's time travel involved. It, it's beyond self-indulgent. There's 90 chapters. Every chapter is named after a misheard lyric. But this is what, what I do. I had a small publisher who was very nice to put out my books, but it was self-indulgent. I was having fun with it. You're going in with like a musician, though, in some yeah, ways then. Like it's, 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 you're, you're making art for yourself in the musical variety, and you're making art for yourself in the literary the fact that you are willing to do that and take that dive, but far more importantly, finish it, sit back and be like, yeah, that's a self-indulgent piece of shit. Again, that's because such a level of capability. You're, you're a sci-fi fan. To show you how self-indulgent this was, I write very short books, all super condensed. This was the longest book I wrote, and it was about 49,000 words. And I noticed that I was within... 30 words of the word count for Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. So I called my editor. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I need a pretty silly favor. I need you to add to add 24 words back or whatever it was. And she's like, Why? I'm like, I'm not gonna even tell you. (laughs) I do recommend if anyone who is a sci-fi fan who wants to read something that's a little bit out there, you know, I I do recommend it. I think it's fantastic. I'm not kidding. I would love to read it. I would love to read it. Well, yeah, you have a different pen name than uh, the placeholder confidential. Right. It's, my my pen name is Aurora Zani. That was my grandmother's name. Uh-huh. I mean, I always like the way it sounds, but I just, mm-hmm. you know, it's when someone's gone, there's so few things you can do. Yeah. And it was a way where I have a, it's a constant memory, a constant reminder. I love seeing the name every time I see it because of it. Where could people uh, find that literature? It's all on Amazon and any online book distributor is Aurora Zani. When you get into the flow of writing, is it a similar mindset to when you get into the flow of writing music? Or is it like something completely different for you? No, it is uh, exactly the same. I mean, with music, it's easier to pick the moments. The genesis of inspiration is something that, you know, it's hard to pinpoint. You can't try to recreate it. It just kind of happens. With music, and because I have a more extensive background in music, I can kind of see how it happens, where it goes, and I'll produce something or write something. And afterwards, like, okay, this is where this is from. The difference is with writing that there'll be entire things that I'll write where I'm like, was I in a trance? Where did this come from? I mean, everything I've written was sort of autobiographical. But then there's moments where you do get lost in characters and you're having these conversations that you are not in control of. It's bizarre. The only difference between the two is that with the the writing, because it's so much, it gets more in depth and there's a bigger scope around it, you'll get moments which you can't really account for. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, do- it totally does. There's plenty more to come here on Lost and Rewound, but first a quick word from RFB. Do stick around. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, 
and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax-deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. For this next half, we got a bunch of songs that we're going to be listening to, and one of them is called Terminal Romantic. So how does that tie in? Is it the lyrical content related to that of the novel? The lyrics were partially written first for the first draft of the novel. Upon editing the novel, I rewrote the lyrics. And then the next time I played with a band, just a jam, they were like, hey, we're all New Order fans. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a fake New Order song. I call everything fake. It's my my name for pastiche is calling it fake. So okay. I played it and I just, I'm like, oh, oh, no, no, this song is called this and I have lyrics for it. I'll put them in later. This is recorded originally a little later uh, than the ones we'll be listening to later. Uh, so we're kind of coming a little bit of that order, shall we say. Uh, but this is 2012, and this was recorded live. Is that, I, I read that right from the file name? It's a live recording of that. I just took a live uh, digital recording of it that someone just threw a, a recorder down. And then right. I go home and I added some touches to it. So the vocals and the guitar parts were done over and dubbed over in my house, but the rest was live. Awesome. Let's take a listen to this first of old placeholder confidential, and it's called Terminal Romantic.
when we were emailing with each other originally, Ori, that uh, you consider yourself a 90s indie rocker. Yeah. I mean, that definitely shows here. That that song has always been special to me because I like the fact that the song was sort of conceptually conceived before I put it to me. You know, it was almost everything was done in reverse. It started off with the, the basic thought, the lyrics, and then the music kind of came afterwards. And even but even in the as like the actual music from it was the equivalent of an improv session i i, I was playing with a couple, we're just kind of jamming like hey do me a favor play this on bass don't stop playing it you got this because everyone like i'm like hey, everyone likes new order here it was, it was a case where it was four of us we all love new order I'm like you play this you the drummer just do new ordery things watch my foot and we kind of just like flowed with it what was the name of your band uh, that you had previously? The band that I was in that, I mean, there's lots of bands that don't count as bands. It's, yeah. but the band that I played shows with and was active for three or four years called the Annabelle Chongs. The Annabelle Chongs? Annabelle Chongs, yeah. Annabelle Chong was a uh, 90s porn star who in the industry was trying to break every taboo in the last taboo industry. There's an amazing documentary about her. Now she's she's a software design. I mean, she's she's had several jobs and like she's like 
a million years removed from it. But uh, that's I, I always thought I saw this documentary and I, I thought I'm like, this is a really ongoing large performance piece, like her entire career, which is what it was. I was happy she uh, over email gave us permission to use the name. I'm like, thank you. Oh my god, that's awesome. What was it like talking to her? It's wild. It was just I was like I do a little bit of research because she, she was removed from the industry by quite some bit. I don't want to bother this person. I don't want that. I just happened to read about some of her musical taste, and it was very much in line with like the first set of songs I where I just sent her an email saying, hi, I'm so sorry. This is really that. But I do want to let you know that this we we're planning on calling the band name this. And she just emailed back saying, oh, my God, I love the Jesus of Mary chain. Yeah, but you spell it this way because I never signed a contract with it spelled this way. So legally, no one could bother you ever. And I was like, thank you. Great. All right. Hashtag support sex work. <laughs> I strongly support sex work. And if you break down the reasons why there's so many issues with how legally and as a society we treat sex work, it breaks down to so many of the issues that we have in this country. Yep. Uh, we definitely shouldn't start down that path. No, let's, let's, but, but, let's, yeah, I would be happy to start down that path. I, I know you would. We're, I think I think everybody on this show would be happy to start down that path. Remember, this is uncensored radio, my friend. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll say whatever. Just for the sake of us focusing like the, at the task at hand. <laughs> we will go on a two-hour tangent. I actually wanted to uh, ask at this time, because uh, I realized we never touched upon it, the name of your band. You ended up settling on Placeholder Confidential because you didn't have a band name, and you were like, well, this is a placeholder, and it's that, and then right. the confidential adding to it just is, mwah, it's like chef's kiss of just like perfect band name. I can't take credit for that part because so the placeholder confidential was the placeholder name for a, a soap opera podcast that I was writing. With, uh, with uh, and oh, this is something, I mean, uh, this is typical me. And uh, this was a couple, maybe two years ago where I was earnestly working on it. And this is a time where, you know, serialized podcasts were actually a thing and i actually have an avenue to make this work and be produced and pitch it to a larger audience of course i put it on hold do other things because it's how i am but that was called placeholder confidential and a friend of mine was reading it and we did a couple of like demo podcasts for the pilot and he's like that would be a great band name for you i'm like that is everything i need right there absolutely just to put this in a little bit more context because we haven't really touched on this so you're so just chronologically we're in new jersey You've moved from Argentina at three. You've been growing up in Jersey. You've got all these different bands. You've fallen in love with the Beatles, both a love and hate relationship. And now you're starting to make music. So from your, basically from your teen years till when we get to Placeholder Confidential, can you give us just a, uh, whatever you want to say on how, on basically how you got from there to there. So the amount of effort involved in this usually involves other people and kind of pushing me to do things. As far as like the record, like it's, I've gone through several cycles now. Like I, I, I sent you some of older stuff where when I was in the band and we were going recording in the studio, then I reverted to like doing very, very crude demos. And then onto fleshing out crude demos, fleshing out the songs more, being liberated by not having a band and be able to just fully focus on it myself. Although I still don't know how I put out a pop album. You know, my influences are all over, but they all tend to be faster, heavier, or moodier, weirder. So the fact that this sounds like a Walk the Moon album or something, it really mm. is super polished. I'm still calling it indie pop, but it's a lot more pop than I thought I was capable of. Through this the entire journey, 
the most liberating thing I could do was put out something that was beyond pop, super like polished <laughs> there of being like, what I would have made it? fun of myself as a teenager. Yeah. What comes to mind when you think of yourself uh, in 2004 as a musician? So it was me taking the plunge from just working myself to working with others and trying to have a band and the struggles of having a band and the limitations of having a band. Aside from that, I only just very recently have revisited that to appreciate the music that I made then. I had a lot of negative connotations to it for a while because I just thought of all the drawbacks, all the things that I did wrong. You're hearing things that I was writing for other people. I, I had other people in the band and even though they weren't doing much to add creatively, I, it was the, all the songs were always mine. I was still trying to write songs to please them. When we were good, we had some amazing moments. Like live, we were amazing and phenomenal. But for the rest of the time, it was a struggle. On Fresh Years, Run for the Love of God from 2004 from the Annabelle Chongs right here on LNR. <laughs> my favorite that's definitely my favorite too thus far so now you hear the 90s indie rock influence i was a mini scene stir this close to new york city it's it's a waste not to be i mean yeah dude I can rock on. okay what kind of haircut did you have so i looked 35 when i was 
14. <laughs> I had to see this look in the entire time, so I, I haven't aged in a million years because of it. So I've had the same hair the entire time. That track in 2004 is released. I'm wondering what shows you were going and seeing as a scenester. I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to use that connotation. I'm saying like, you know, shows that were influential to you uh, that, you know, as an this artist is, yourself. This is post scenester because once you're in a band trampoline in New York, you have no time to go or money to go to the shows. <laughs> Fair. You know? But before my biggest influences as an artist probably were bands I saw live a lot during that time. Okay. I mean, like I saw Sonic Youth 30 times, you know, at least, you know, like everything from Sonic Youth pavement. And at that point, yeah, I was seeing whatever I could and playing whatever shows I could. You go to a venue for yourself. One, it's so rarely, but even then you're like, oh, how can I get here? How do I play here? Like, you know, okay, so are, we this... talking, are we talking like Rockwood? Are we talking like CBGBs? Are we talking, sorry. This sounds more like a CBGBs if it's Sonic Youth. CBGBs was the place where my band played the most. So I think we were the last not famous band to play at CBGBs. Three weeks before they closed down, uh, another band canceled. And because we'd played there so many times and, you know, I became really friendly. CBGBs was amazing. They truly would let anyone play there. But the way they would decide on how they would rebook and how the bands they would work with is like they gave the staff there a little questionnaire and like give notes on a band, like the bartender, the bouncer, the sound guy. So if you were a fun band that the audience paid attention to and you were good with them, they would like rate you higher and you get to play more. So uh, that's one of great experiences in my life. Like maybe three weeks before CB's closed, we got to play there. And I mean, usually when I was on stage, I was pretty focused. You know, I wanted us to sound good. I want to play that. But that was the first time where I finally stopped and took in. We played there so many times. But I'm like, well, I'm on stage where so many of my idols have played. So much of the music that I love was like generated and sit there. And, you know, really being in the moment, like for our last song, it's like this long. The song ends with like this big noise jam where you know, I would use the mic stand as a slide. I would play the acoustic guitar, amplify break strings. And it was a sold out crowd. It was it was just a moment which you can't, I don't know how to top it in my life. It was just amazing. I almost came really close to kicking someone in the head for trying to jump on the stage. Oh no. And well, they were about to attack us. And it's because me and my guitar, both of us, it wasn't a kick, but we defensively put our foot up and you know, the, the person's friends grabbed them back. I do love when bands put on a show. And it's like, if someone's like, if I was in a band that was headlining and, you know, I know people are coming out specifically to see me and, I think I probably would put a lot more thought into enhancing the performance with something besides just the music. In terms of who was in the crowd, you have, would have friends who'd come and see you. Uh, did you have family ever that would come and see your shows? The only time I've had family come see a show was maybe before I had you know, my first band. band. Uh, I had locally had a little fun band where it was just me and my girlfriend at the time and a drummer. And there was a local cafe who heard us always say, talking like, oh, you guys play music? We had just like started jamming. He's like, he's like, I've got a pickup truck. You've got equipment. You can play here every Friday. So like, you know, was, we, we were just this local cafe band for a few months. And that's when some family members came to see. I mean, the shows are in the same. Also, whenever someone joined my band, I would give them two rules. And rule number one was no one gives a fuck about your band. Because in reality, you can force your friends to go see shows. You can do that. But you just you're forcing them. You're not the people. A lot, not everyone likes music. Not everyone likes going to see a show. They want to be supportive, but don't pressure your friends, and also don't pretend that you're bigger than you are. I, I don't believe in fake it till you make it mentality. 
you know, so that was rule number one. Rule number two was no black jeans. What? And I, <laughs> I don't know what brought that up, but I'm like, yeah, no black jeans, but everyone really stuck by it. They're like, they're like, <laughs> like they would yell oh, at other what? bands if you're playing with like, ah, what's wrong with you? Why are you wearing black jeans? And people are like, what are you talking about? That's a thing. I didn't know. Yeah, that why this is was... that a thing? When you're playing, you know, clubs like CBGBs and Maxwell's, you see a lot of, a lot of people wearing, you know, a leather jacket with black jeans, and I, I think of it as a uniform, you know. And I like that when we went on stage, we were a visually diverse band of all different walks of life, and we just wore whatever, and no one would be like, "Oh, is that the band?" When we went on stage, they would be surprised. And also, it was fun because i played an acoustic guitar but it was through a giant marshall amp and a distortion pedal so they, <laughs> they would see it they're like oh they have a female drummer with a, a microphone to sing they have you know a metal guitarist they have a, a, whatever the bass player was and they have me who was like you know kind of like in this group playing an acoustic guitar and we would play the first song and it'd be extremely loud and like so it was it was fun we have time for one more track and uh, I sense that this might be a fan favorite uh, based on the premise of it. Could you tell us a little bit about Johnny Posse? Oh, so Johnny Posse. When, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to the drummer on that track, my friend uh, Mike Matera, who had so much fun with it. He had never heard the song before we before this recording. And I just kind of like went through it. I'm like, this is how it's going to go. I'm like, I said, I want you to have fun with it. And I'm depressed because it's not a great recording of it, but his drums are amazing on it. And that's a song that me and two friends were walking down the street and out of a, a garbage truck, we saw a possum jump out, look at us, be frightened and then run off into a yard to hide. And I don't know why I was like, oh, poor Johnny Posse. And they're like, what? Like, so you've given this, this is now a character. I'm like, yeah, Johnny Posse. And I said some quick nonsense lyrics. I'm like, yeah, that's going to be a song. And they're like, no, it's not. That's not a song. And then I went and recorded. They're like, all right, fine. That's a song. But yeah, Johnny Posse is about a possum who I saw for about three seconds. And to this day, in my small circle of friends, the lyrics to the song are controversial because they don't believe that they're true.
This is a this is a a cautionary tale for what happens uh, when you are seen by a human for three seconds. You will get a, an anthem written about you. It's yeah, it's a theme song to a non-existent cartoon. As he strikes back, I love the concept about it being a theme to a non-existent cartoon. It's hard to create a universe in three seconds, but in my mind, this poor possum was just hanging out playing and ended up in a dumpster. I was like, oh no, how am I here? And he runs away to hide and his poor friends are looking for him now. <laughs> so. Now, are his friends also possums? I mean... Is this a possum uh, universe? So in here, I live, uh, you know, uh, where I live, Carney is a large industrial park, which is why we'll see possums. So I'm guessing it'll be mostly possums because there are there, but there's got to be other animals there. I mean, if you're living in an industrial park, you make the most of your friends. <laughs> All these songs that you share with us uh, in this second half are uh, demos uh, that you more or less have sat on and you uh, have a, an, an amalgam, shall we say, of tracks as if you haven't already recorded and released to the masses to hear online. But there's more where this came from. And it all dates back to 2006. Right. And I mean, so I've now that could record at home, do some more. I've taken a lot of my old bands, like live recordings and studio recordings. And now like enhanced them. Like, I mean, when you're in a studio paying for time, it's hard to get everything done. And I mean, I had a lot more I wanted to add to them. And since so for the last three years, anytime I go into a studio, I've had two or three drummers I worked with, but we'll go in and usually don't know what we're going to play. We'll play for two hours. I will, run a tape to record anywhere from three to we've done eight songs in a session and then I'll flat, I'll flesh them out. Like I have a, my a good friend of mine is a drummer in Baltimore and we'll play once in a while. I, I actually put up a lot of singles on Bandcamp that I've now taken down because I'm going to re-record and re-release them. What is it like to have these songs shared to who knows how many people? For me, the concept of promotion is I don't really love once I did an interview for a, a local college radio station and the DJ was like, okay, so we're going live. What do you want to talk about? I'm like, uh, Miss Congeniality part two is coming out on Friday. Can we <laughs> pretend we're doing like a press junket for it? He's like, really? He's like, is he sure? He goes, he goes, please, can we do that? I'm like, yeah. So we would play a song. He goes, okay, so this Friday comes out and I would just talk about Miss Congeniality part two, which was just okay. It wasn't because the first one, but still. So that's like kind of like my idea of promotion. But aside from that, like I also, when I was publishing books, I did a lot of interviews and this is so much more enjoyable because when you're discussing a book, you're trying to condense down everything you've done into like one thing, as opposed to here, you're taking three to four minutes of music and expanding it as much as possible. I love discussing it. I love discussing the process, the content, all these questions you're asking. This is just like, 
you know, for me, it's wonderful. I love talking about it. Even if someone doesn't love the music, it's very subjective. I love the fact that we get to discuss this and talk about from the creation to the performance of it, just every aspect of it and really get into the details. Placeholderconfidential.bandcamp.com. Final thoughts, uh, gang, before I wrap this up. Dude, if you ever want to do that fucking 40 song epic, you know, please hit me up. Oh, it's happening. Yeah, dude, hit me up. I'm very serious. Yeah, let's do it. I'll do it. I will. <laughs> yeah, he will. <laughs> will you be there to consult Rachel and and add uh, add your two cents as well, perhaps? If my two cents are wanted, sure. Collaboration is the name of the game, baby. Ori Benavides, thank you very much for your time on Lost and Rewound and for uh, sharing songs of the old and the new. Thank you so much. This was an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, I... You know, if I didn't have to go to work, I'd try to get you to talk on the phone for another hour. Thank you so much. (laughs) If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with the locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out cityrunningtours.com slash New York City for more information. And check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on instagram.com slash cityrunningtours. My thanks again to Ori Benavides as well as to my faithful team of Rachel Teichman and Will Hastie. To peep the archives and to listen to our past episodes, we're up on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our main HQ, which is radiofreebrooklyn.org slash L-A-R. This has been episode 243 of Lost and Rewound. Come back next week for another new installment, only here on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Alon telling you to stay safe out there, wash your hands, and listen to truth. Peace. We are here from our respective homes through the virtual power has- of Zoom. <laughs> sorry, sorry. What's a what pandemic? Are we what talking over each to- other? What's happening? I'm behaving, so. You are. Oh, well, no, but you're definitely the best of all of us in that regard.